Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Welcome to another episode of the Rodcast. Today I'm joined by our veteran guest, Adam Lawrence, who's been on several times before. Adam, it's great to have you back. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Rod, and thanks for having me again. It's always a pleasure. Good stuff. So today I think we're going to talk about forecasting. And um, the reason this has come up is because on a few kind of forums, I've seen... uh, I always really hate these kind of cliche things that people say, like no one has a crystal ball and only mystic Meg knows what the future holds. And I just find that a really silly statement to make when you're talking about investment, because that's the name of the game. What you are investing for is future returns. And so you need to make, whether or not, you're confident in your approach is a different question, but you need to be able to forecast. And and it kind of goes on from that. A while ago, I had done a a talk where I went through the sort of real numbers of a buy-to-let deal that was 7% yield of a 250 grand uh, property, bought through a limited company, and all the associated costs that no one ever really talks about. And it ended up being a very, very low returning investment over the short term. I think it was something like about, I don't know, it worked out as being about 1% on the capital put in or something like that. And, and, then, and then someone said to me, well, why would anyone buy that? And I think that's a really good question. And then you start to look at, right, now what are we looking at? We're looking at forecasting. We're looking at what people are investing for and the reality is most people that buy investment property it's for the long term and it's for the total returns and total returns over time are on the whole or on the majority made up from capital gains from capital growth of the asset rather than income from the asset and i think people certainly that are maybe new to property sometimes forget that for example when you take that property in the example that i don't know only gave a very small return we then did the figures of if actually you hold that for 10 years on average by five percent a year and on average the rent goes up by two percent a year actually then your investment is 30% better over a 10-year term than the uh, last 10 years of the S&P 500. And that's when taking into consideration putting it into a tax-free wrapper like an ISA. So what we see is over the long term, there are massive gains to be made, especially if you can utilise capital growth and things like that. But obviously what goes up can go down and you need to be able to forecast and get the right and invest in the right areas and the right asset class and the right um, tenant type. So what what are your thoughts on the whole kind of forecast thing then? And, and what is it that you do when you're looking at an investment? Brilliant. Great, great leading. So to take the first part of that question, really, I, I totally agree with you in that when I hear people say, like, oh, you, can't, you can't work out what's going to happen, it's just a bit of a cop-out. I think really what what it re- the reality it takes quite a lot of hard work and you're not going to get it right every time in fact you're not going to get it exactly right at any time but that's not the point and that's not what you're what you're trying to achieve so I, I'm I'm very much on the same page as you with that one and then in terms of what are you forecasting well I think broadly when you're considering property you, you've mentioned there. I, I talk a little bit about the Holy Trinity. You know, I've been lucky enough to be able to buy quite a lot at, at discounted prices. That's not easy for everybody to do. I know you've done it as well. And that's a, a kind of immediate capital gain, if you like. So if you roll that into the capital growth argument, then it does make that even more of a, a behemoth, really, I suppose. And then when you think about... Go on, sorry. I was just going to say, on that point, there's a slight difference, though. And that takes you into the realm of actually being very directly involved in the asset management and, and operations of the investment. 
for your everyday buy to let investor, although the everyday buy to let investor is certainly changing as to what it was maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago. I think people often forget that as well. And we talk all the time on the podcast about effort, risk and reward and people forgetting the effort. But I, I just wanted to make make that point that obviously it's a direct investment. And if you are able and have the skill set to be able to buy below market value or add physical value or add paper value, then that's fantastic. But not everyone does and not everyone has the actual capability to do it, even though they think they might do. No, you're dead right. And I often relate that back to, I say to people, you know, you need, there are things that you, you need at least some of, and that is time, motivation. And, and if you've got a bit of all three or a lot of all three, then you're, you're, you're a danger. And I, I use the word danger deliberately because you're a danger to other people in the marketplace. You can buy well if you've got the right background or you do the, the relevant amount of legwork or the relevant amount of educating yourself or whatever, but you're also at risk because you've got all the thing, all the recipes there potentially losing money, um, which people often forget about as well. So the word danger is very deliberate in that situation. Well, I think that's a really good point. And it kind of comes up on something that I think a lot of investors at the outset forget to kind of ask themselves, which is, what are they trying to achieve? Are they trying to beat the market? Or are they trying to ride a wave of a market? And so if we think about each of these, we're using residential buy-to-lets as an example, but in, even in that residential buy-to-let market, you're still looking at, okay, the location, the asset type, is it a one-bed studio or is it a four-bed detached house? And the tenant type, are you renting to social tenants or is it private tenants? Or You're looking at each of those markets. So are you thinking, actually, in Aberdeen, it's hit an all-time low and things are going to go on the up because someone's about to invest heavily, whatever it is, in the infrastructure. And I think that's a, a market wave that I want to ride. Or is it that I found a good deal that I can add value to either by buying below market value or adding physical value on pound per square foot basis or uplifting it or maybe changing the use? Because then that really is not riding that market, that is beating the current market. And I think a lot of people kind of, again, from the outset, maybe don't ask themselves that question. I think that's another really, really cracking point. Because I think I said to someone a few months back at the time, you know, crypto was riding really high. They made some comments and I've made 200% in the last 12 months on my Bitcoin. And I said, well, Bitcoin's up 586% in the last 12 months. So... Why have you done so badly is the first question. And people don't understand. They think I'm just being difficult on purpose, but people don't understand that argument. You have, and whereas if you go into the professional world of fund management, as you know, it's about benchmarks. They're not looking at anything else other than benchmarks. And we were, we were talking the other day about REITs and how they've performed over the last sort of 12 months, 24 months, three years, five years. And, you know, they're ultimately, they've had a really rough 12 months, the roughest 12 months they've had for a, many a long time but actually three year and five year it still looks like reasonable returns and as you were saying at the start as soon as you get out into that 10 year plus time horizon you know you've effectively got quite low volatility Mm. solid returns from an asset class that has ultimately outperformed all others over the last 40 50 60 70 years and that's what people yeah, that, that plus the leverage you have in your control. Of the- I was going to have to butt in at that comment because we'll get a load of fund managers kind of calling you up on that and saying, well, actually, no, it is. But what we're talking about is not the real estate market in terms of institutional investment. We're talking about buy to let where it's leveraged by the direct investor. Oh, absolutely. And, and also they need to bear in mind that ultimately they're, they're leveraged 20, 30, 40, 50%, sometimes LTV on their book value. Yeah. Um, so it's not it's not a, a straight stock market comparison to an unlevered buy-to-let is not a reasonable one either. Of residential property in the UK, because really what you're buying, when you try and compare it to other assets, it has the utility of a commodity, 
it behaves a little bit like a leveraged equity, but much less volatile. And um, so you get kind of the best of, of both worlds, really, there, don't you? You do that, that thing that you shouldn't be allowed to do in investment where you get a higher return for a lower risk. And that has persisted over many years. Now, of course, you, you've already alluded to the fact it's changed massively and your average buy-to-let investor in 2011 doesn't look the same as your average buy-to-let investor in 2021 by any any stretch of the imagination. A lot of that to do with you know corporates being given a bit more runway to get involved and individual personal landlords almost being shoved out the door as well, you know. But to bring that back into the, the main context of, of the question, ultimately, that's why I got involved in UK resident property because the interest rate was low post 2008 GFC. You know, we went to 0.5% in 2009. And one of the things that I knew would be important early on, and it would be an informer of whether I would need to change my strategy in a, in a major strategic shift, was what will the interest rate do? And ultimately, that also, there are, there are broader consequences because the interest rate isn't a beast that lives on its own. It does depend on inflation, but it also depends on unemployment. The central bank has, has multiple concerns. It, it depends on a whole number of things. And of course, a lot of that logic and a lot of the stuff I thought I knew about economics has been thrown out the window in the last 18 months anyway. And then I suppose you can take each of those points, for example, look at unemployment and look at what that means based on property, because we know property is heavily, property prices and rents are heavily based on affordability, so that means what people are earning. So unemployment sometimes can be skewed in terms of where we've got zero-hour contracts, we've got part-time workers, we've got households that maybe have more than one. So there's all, all different ways that those kind of statistics can be, I don't know, for want of a better word, manipulated to give you maybe a false sense of, of, where, of where things are going. I totally agree with that. And I, I, I always balk when I make a bit, I write a lot about this sort of stuff in my Sunday supplement. And I've written a lot about inflation over the last sort of six to nine months, as you know. But I am always, I always try to be quite wary around putting too much stall in one metric. I'm, I'm pretty sure, I'm sure someone will listen back to it and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure when you, myself and Daryl spoke in probably April last year, we were talking about exactly that sort of stuff and what, what the unemployment would actually look like. How would it manifest itself? What demographics would be unemployed? And I think, I, re I remember certainly at the time, don't know if I said it on the broadcast, but I was thinking that the middle class might be hit quite significantly, the, the inevitable COVID recession that didn't really happen because of the stimulus. And that's one that I definitely got completely wrong. But, but being someone who, who's happy to admit when that happens and change my forecast quite quickly, in the face of the data that was coming out when the market reopened in late May and everything else, I moved from pretty sure we're going to see maybe a 5 or 10% correction in pricing this year to I'm not convinced anything's going to go down at all to I don't think higher yielding, lower value stuff will go down to, oh my God, there's a supply shortage and there's a massive boom. Within about eight weeks of, of, of all of that, which is probably still too slow to be but, but actually, that's probably a blessing in disguise in terms of the asset class that you're investing in, which is very, very illiquid at the best of times. Hi, everyone. I just wanted to quickly cut in with a message from our fantastic sponsor, Brickflow. For most property developers, obtaining development finance for their project is not something they look forward to. There are dozens of lenders, but most developers only know a few well enough to approach. Every lender will offer a different loan size and loan price on each project. And by only approaching a handful of lenders, we all know there's almost zero chance of getting the best loan. But getting quotes from every lender would take weeks and months. Brickflow is the UK's first comparison site for development finance, designed to save you time and money. In the same way most people search for their car insurance, Brickflow allows developers to compare more than 30 of the UK's best development lenders in seconds. Brickflow filters out the lenders that are less likely to lend to you and just leave the ones that should. They organise them in a clear way, providing estimates of what each lender will lend and at what price. Applying couldn't be simpler. There is one application process for all of our lenders. 
Build your project appraisal on the platform and select which lenders you would like to approach. Lenders get a clear and precise presentation about you and your project, allowing them to make quick and reliable decisions. They submit their best bid for your project and you decide which lender you want to work with. The whole process is quicker, easier and lets you concentrate on the things you're best at. Brickflow. Development financing clicks, not weeks. Search brickflow.com today. Let's get back to the show. And so if you, for example, were investing in I don't know, the stock market and other asset classes that are much more liquid, then you, then those kind of mistakes in your forecast would have shown up in your returns, really, when, when they go wrong. The beauty, and I suppose it's also an active of, of um, investing in, in property, is that it's very slow to purchase, it's slow to kind of get on the ball and it's and that's what what makes it illiquid but that can help in evening out the volatility as well which in this case has probably worked pretty well for you i'd imagine that's a, a really good point because the thing is it stops you from you now people say it like it's easy you know buy low sell high that's the way forward and, and people don't always look back at, and whilst the, there is truth in the expression past performance is no guarantee of future returns you could look. You could have looked back at something like Bitcoin and seen what a ride it is. And someone like me would look at it and say, "Okay, so the top to the bottom in sort of 2017, which is the last, the last bull run before the last one that we would all remember, um, the top to the bottom was about 80 percent. And so, not the stock market doesn't tend to lose 80 percent of its value. You know, that's not 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 as a market. You know, companies have obviously. Yeah. lost that sort of money over a short period of time sometimes but not as a market and neither as the property market but you, you you get to understand the roller coaster that you're on then and sometimes if you're talking small amounts of money not necessarily as in pounds terms or whatever but in percentage terms high volatility is what you want because it's a small it's a small stake it's a bit of a gamble as, as we've said there is absolutely huge and ultimately you know, you can only lose 100%, whereas you can gain 500%, as some people learned, if they timed it right in the last. But that, that ultimate liquidity, I know it takes a few minutes to do a transaction or whatever, but that ultimate liquidity means it's up to you to make those decisions in the moment. And of course, as humans, we tend to get these things wrong. We tend to panic. We tend to, to forget all the books that we've read and all the, all the great sayings that we know about investment. And just get stuck in and think right out of this. I can't take it anymore. This is no good. And I've I've heard a few sort of you know sad stories of people who've lost quite a lot of money because they've they've done the classic FOMO, not really you know never really traded stocks before and gone straight into crypto and then boom you know to totally totally wrong timing and all sorts of stuffs going off that's that's continuing to and you know taking losses is one of the hardest things to do when you need to take one. But the ability to take one 24-7-365 might keep you up at night and all the rest of it. And that's why, you know, sometimes the right thing to do is, you know, Warren Buffett takes it to the extreme, doesn't he? He just doesn't play in markets he doesn't understand. He'll throw some comments, comments out there and he'll follow them, but he just doesn't get involved. What was it? How many years had Apple been public before he got stuck into Apple shares? You know, he said for years he wouldn't get involved in tech. And yeah. now tech is such a big deal. I think he's been involved in Apple for about four years now. I think since he's been involved, the share price has probably more than doubled or something like that. So he's done okay getting on the gravy train late on. But it's a, it, it's a, you, you were talking earlier about, you know, Joe Public advice. And I think, you know, Warren says buy index funds and sit back and don't do anything. And there's, there's some, and, and he would say the same thing about time horizons that we have, wouldn't he, in terms of, you know, you're looking at, you're looking at, when you look at the 10 years, you're probably going to be well looked after. But getting involved over a short period of time is, is much riskier. Yeah, I think if you want to play the trading game in property, you're going to be doing some form of kind of development, whether that's all physically, or you're going to be buying very well, and probably spending an awful lot of time and money and effort on, on the purchasing and marketing of, of that and as a, as a proper property trader. There's not, and there's absolutely nothing wrong that there's no kind of one is better than the other. But I think with that, what people kind of look at and they'll go, oh, okay, well, this person made a return of 50% on their cash 
in a in the space of 12 months okay doing a small flip versus this person who's making i don't know 10 percent on their cash at the end of the year now which one is better well for to answer that you've got to look at well what's the person's skill set what's the amount of time and energy they can put into that development or flip and then when they come out of it what's the holding time what's the time that they're cash is no longer tied up in something or invested in something. So it could be that they're waiting for sales to go on. It could be that they're waiting now to buy something new. So if you look at that, although it's over 12 months, it might be kind of, you might only be able to do two every three years. And then you start looking at that over a 10 year period. Now, okay, how are you going to have the energy and the capability to be stuck in, be doing that as a kind of role yourself? Or can you just sit back, and it's never really sitting back as an investor or landlord, but it's a lot, it's a lot less stressful, definitely, and requires probably a lot less kind of sweat input. Um, or can you just sit back and hold on to those properties? There's no right answer, but I think a lot of people go into things with a need for X, and actually their investment is something that suits Y. For example, they might need quick cash flow and they'll go and buy long-term assets that really don't get the benefit until maybe year six, seven and eight, where it's where it's a much bigger trajectory on the upward curve at those points. And I think it's important, especially for people coming in to property investment, to really, really understand all those kind of the way the ways in which those investments work and how often at the front end you're putting in a lot of capital and you might not see it for a, for a while but then at the back end it really starts to to pay off and if you're happy to not receive any of the income for a decent amount of time then often the investment over that 10-year period can be can be much better if you're going to collect it all at the back end rather than if you're going to just keep flipping properties and rolling it back in Absolutely. I think, you know, the, the, the tax side of things comes into things there as well, doesn't it? Because you're crystallising gains in the now rather than rolling them up. And this is why, again, stocks sometimes when they're buying back their stock, they're taking advantage of the, comp, the, the, the miracle of compound interest effectively. And that's what people forget. And, and I always feel like, you know, I'm, I'm biased towards holding stuff, you know, not that I haven't flipped stuff, not that I don't flip stuff. But I'm biased towards holding it because I, I think I always have that sort of keen feeling that, well, I'd be able to do another deal that was as good as this one or that one or the other one. And whilst that's not necessarily the right way to look at it, because your best deals in 2021 will, for a whole number of reasons, will look different to your best deals from 2015, let's say. It's still being able to adjust enough, being able to pivot enough, being able to, you know, I, I think I suppose early this year I had a, uh, a, a choice really of, did I chase prices upwards and try and do what we'd been doing for several years? Or did I accept that we might need to do things a little bit differently? And it just didn't feel right to me to be paying more and more for stuff in general and doing sort of, you know, you're putting more emphasis onto the, the long term and the market and the stuff that we can't really control. We can control our timing, um, but we know we want to be in for a long time. So if we can't control all that stuff, is it a good idea to look at something slightly different and try and find different angles? You know, historically, I've done that geographically sometimes to an extent. I probably haven't done it as much with tenant type as I would have liked to had I had, a, had, I had the crystal ball at the start of the pandemic and thought, oh, why haven't I got, you know, people were saying I've got 50% social housing leases, 75% social housing leases thinking, Blimey, I wouldn't mind being in that position right now. You know, that's the thing. Not that it made me think I'm going to go and do that, but maybe increasing a bit of exposure to that sector, which is one of the things that I've gone and done since the pandemic started, really, either either directly to LHA tenants or indirectly through, you know, registered providers and things like that. So, and, that, and that's also part of that updating, you know, relatively, being relatively agile. I, I come from a background of, significant change at fast pace so i got into people laugh sometimes but you know i got into property because i wanted it to be less risky a bit calmer and uh, not have all this stuff going on now it's horses for courses like you say if you come from a if you're used to being an actuary 
or, or something like that, then it probably won't feel like that to you ultimately. But it, but it has done to me, and it's been and it's been good to me. And you you make a really good point earlier about the the, the, the speed of transaction that you're effectively forced into. You know, because ultimately, you know, if you dispose by auction, you're likely to take a bit of a haircut on the full market value. Yet there are times when you get lucky, or you've got a property that's perfectly presentable for an auction that you can beat the market price. You, you can do, but. But in likelihood, you're going to be taking a bit of a haircut around the sort of 10 to 15% level, probably. And the reason why you're taking that is certainty and speed, ultimately. And if you can't, or the property, you know, some properties just don't suit auction at all. Your, your private residence is very unlikely to suit an auction sale. And that would be a much bigger haircut you would take, both in percentage terms and in absolute money. So, and sensibly, because the way tax rules are structured, quite a lot of us have quite often got quite a bit of equity in our private residences. We get to enjoy the fruits of what we've done, but also we've got the tax benefits of if we sell up and move and we crystallise it, we haven't got that, that tax bill coming either. So it's a, it's a really broad way. And, that, and I think that's ultimately that's the skill of the property investor slash developer, whatever, isn't it? You've got to be able to look across the board because the accountant often will tell you one thing the broker will tell you another the solicitor will tell you a third and guess what it's down to you to make the decision it's it's having that holistic view isn't it and uh, i mean people might take from this from that example i gave right at the beginning that i only look at capital growth look capital growth is a huge huge part of what i invest on but the other part is as i'm buying in leverage i need to make sure that i can service that debt. So if the capital growth is, I'm confident that that's going to push it up on the loan to value and I can still service the debt come refinance time, whether it's a two, five year fix or whatever it is, or am I going to be able to service it if it goes on to standard variable rate and for some reason I can't get a new mortgage on it? Maybe you're buying something that's a little bit kind of non-vanilla, I don't know, it could be a block of studio flats or something that you feel is, is worthwhile. And you just want to make sure that that um, mortgage product that you can get now is, is going to be available in five years. And what if it's not? Then you hit your standard variable rate. Well, will the rents go up in the same way that the capital values go up? Well, it might not need to go up the same way, but it might need to just go up enough for you to be able to service it. And I think that is where I think going back to that first example, and I will, what I'll do is I will post an image of um, of the example showing all the costs of a buy-to-let bought in limited. One, one point on that is the difference and, and the spread between the base rate and the mortgage rates that limited companies get are huge when you look at the past and you go and look at the spreads normally for buy-to-let mortgages versus the base rate. And this is what kind of swap rates are based on and all the mortgage brokers listening will, will understand this. But do you want to kind of just touch on the differences there and why that is so big? For example, what the base rate is currently 0.1%. Vanilla limited company mortgage will be maybe 3.5%. Now, that's when you look at the percentage difference, it's absolutely massive. And I don't think we've ever seen sort of a spread like that before, which is why now limited company buy-to-lets, you might struggle more than you did in the past for cash flow from the outset. But like I said, if you can stick, stick in it for the long term, then, then, then you can be better off. Do you want to sort of make a comment on, on any of that? Well, sure. I mean, I think it's a really good point about the long, with the long-term path of capital growth over the last decade versus the long-term path of rents is interesting. There's really, it's, we have really poor data in the UK around this stuff in general. So I've seen some US data that says their they're like-for-like rents on new instructions are up 15% year on year, which sounds insane. But then, as you know, their capital values are also up 15 to 20%. So actually, the yields are probably getting squeezed. They're not. They're not growing. Whereas we've had lots and lots of, or, or not, maybe not lots and lots, but various regions of the UK that have grown high, high single figures slash low double digits in the past decade, and the rents just haven't performed in that way at all. So the yields have been continually getting squeezed, and that does mean, you know, the new, the new, you know, I used to think years ago investment grade. It's interesting you chose seven percent for your example because. 
few years ago, I would have said, yes, yeah, 7%, that's about investment grade these days. Whereas with the, the even lower rate environment, you're looking at more like 6%. But if you've got to pay three and a half plus, which are the, the limited company buy-to-lets at smaller loan size, then you've got to consider your OPEX and everything else. And when you think about margins that uh, the lenders are ultimately making all their money on, on lending things out, you know, back in the old days, pre-2008, you'd have a base rate of, say, 5.5%. You know, you'd have savings accounts that might pay 3 or 4% or, or less. You'd have current accounts that would pay less than that. So really, the depositors were, were, were footing a lot of the bill yeah. And you were borrowing it an average of 6%. So the margin was tiny, but it's, it's that pendulum, ultimately, that the bank's got to get the money from somewhere. Whereas these days, we now live in a market where, you know, at, at least by name, at least by, by number of companies out there, more than half of them are not providing the money themselves. They're not depositing. They're, they're packages of loans. They're getting the money in at 1.5% to maybe 2%. They've got OPEX of maybe half a percent, and they've got a 1% margin. So they don't have, there's lots of stuff they don't have to do, including raising funds, which actually when you're a big established building society or bank is relatively easy to do. You kind of know what's going to happen when you put a product out to the market. But if you're a new startup, it's a hell of a lot more difficult to start taking deposits, even with the, I mean, don't get me wrong. If you go 0.1% higher than everybody else and get in the best buy tables, most savvy savers know what the financial services compensation scheme is. But if you're if you're you, you've got to operate all of those things, and if you've got instant deposit account, there's only a certain percentage of that you'll be allowed to use to lend out anyway, because you don't necessarily have the required capital. So it might be easier to get a slab of 250 million quid from HSBC, really, yeah. and you don't want to do the dirty work at the front end. You do the dirty work, tick the boxes, and lend it. You get it. Get it at 1.75. Lend it out at 3.3. Got something in there for your OPEX, and you've got a nice margin and a nice business. You're an, you're an arbitrage business, ultimately. That, you're not not really a bank, you know. That translates perfectly into in terms of how bigger values make things much easier in terms of your OPEX costs taking up a much lower percentage. For example, if we've got a I don't know a flat in London versus a in the Outer Hebrides, if I've got to change a fire door in both, it's going to cost relatively the same for each one. But it might be 200% of my monthly rent over in the Outer Hebrides, and it might be 0.5% of my monthly rent in, in, in London. So it's about understanding those operational costs over time as well. And those, in the same way that the sort of lending of banks and, uh, and credit lines and, and loans work, it's all always a lot easier at bigger numbers, which I think people also forget as well. And so when someone says, oh, I don't know how you cope with a 3.5% yield, like in a prime London office, which are doing great at the moment, versus a 7% yield, I don't know, somewhere else, it's because really going, it goes back to what market they're in, and they're two different markets, so they're very difficult to compare. And I think, again, on comparing, it's so dangerous to compare to things that are not available to you. There's no point in saying, oh, well, 10 years ago I was doing this. Well, it's a different environment now. Or, hey, look, Adam, you've got a great deal. Why, why aren't I doing those deals? Well, they might not be available to me. So I think people need to be very careful about comparing their investment opportunities to other investment opportunities that aren't available to them. But don't compare them to what's happened in different kind of economic environments and marketplaces too. I think that's great. And I think the only thing I can really try and add to that is you also need to always remember, and I see it all the time when people quite quite often, someone's done a few buy-to-let deals and they're looking to branch out a little bit, looking to do something different there. They're exploring. They maybe can't find, as you said, they can't find the deals they were doing three years ago and they're making the mistake of comparing them. And they get seduced by some slightly higher yield stuff. So that might be out of area or it might be a mixed use commercial and resi, which, which might have a higher, higher yield. But unfortunately, they don't do their research before they get stuck into it. And they don't realize that the, the term finance rate they might get on something like that might be 6%, 6.5%. So you need a big gross yield to even get the same result that you're getting from a buy to let. You've also got a much bigger drain if you've got a void in there ultimately 
And, you know, your prime London office doesn't have to raise capital at three and a half percent. So it can still be leveraged sensibly to 50 to 60 percent of its LTV at probably, you know, one and a half to two percent above base or something. So it's it's still a nice, there's, there's still margin there for the, whereas you can find, you know, at the extreme end, you know, asylum seeker HMO in somewhere in the northeast where the bricks, it's costing more to do the refurb than you could buy a house for, which is not uncommon. And you find that actually you can only get a mortgage from a specialist lender who wants to charge you 7.99 and your 10% cash on cash suddenly is, is effectively making you no money, even with your guaranteed rent and this, that and the other, you know. So you've got to understand the underlying cost of capital in, in there as well, very, very much so. And that's what another good reason to follow your mantra rod of not comparing what other people are doing, not comparing what you did six years ago or whatever, you know, there's, there's, there's no relevance. The relevance is what's available now and what will, what will tick the boxes that I want to tick and, and what will further. I mean, I think looking at the way I've looked at things over time, I've had a, a large percentage of cheaper, higher yielding units. And ultimately they tend to go one of two ways. They're either good as gold and you never even hear about the address and they just perform fantastic. Or I suppose one of three ways, really. Or they're always difficult and you feel like you're quite unlucky with that particular property. And you've got to sort of strip the emotion out and decide, right, do I actually get rid of that one? Or have we solved the problems and can we move on? You know, or they're actually quite volatile in their cash flow returns. And that's why you kind of need to do those in some volume. Because if you have three buy to let, you can easily have a bad year, really, really easily. And you could have a bad two or three years. Whereas if you've got 30, you're much less likely to. But of course, you've got all that much extra asset management work to be doing as well. Well, this kind of goes back. This is going slightly off point if we haven't already. But on, on in terms of kind of people talking about Section 21s and things like that, and they don't want them to get rid of them and... Where you've got the very big landlords, the very the PRS companies, institutions are more than happy to get rid of it, because for them, as a percentage of their portfolio, those sort of voids that might come from will be minimal. But for the average PRS landlord who's got I don't know two point one properties, if they've got someone who's not paying rent and they can't get them out quick enough, and it takes them eight months to get them out, then and all their income is dependent on their property portfolio, and suddenly that could be 50%, or even if they've only got one property, 100% of their, of their income gone. Whereas these larger c- companies, it might be less than 1%, and it's not a big issue for them. And then that helps them to get their market share and things like that. So I just thought I'd make that point. But going back on the subject, so we've talked about interest rates in terms of forecasts, and we've talked about, obviously, location, well, we haven't really got into location. What, in terms of location, what then are you looking at to make a forecast? So I'm looking at, I'm looking at some past data in terms of the, the population. So not just whether it's increased over time, although that's obviously a good sign, or maybe it's correct, more correct to say decreasing populations are a really bad sign. So it's a bit like inflation and deflation, really, I think, when you come to sort of pop. But also, how's the population pyramid shaping up? What's going to happen over the next 20 years? You know, the local authorities have done the work on this stuff, generally speaking, or other other organisations have. You can just go out there and find and and read the report. So if the the fact of the matter is the population is going to get a lot older in air in Scotland, for example. I remember, you know, a while ago we looked at a deal in air. Okay, so when we were looking at this deal in air, I recall that the population growth or decline was actually looking to be pretty stable over the next... 10 or 15 years, which is the sort of time horizon we were looking at. But because the deal that we were looking at had some fairly significant development potential in the longer term, we were thinking the site would be absolutely ideal for retirement flats. And actually, it was looking into the shape of the population pyramid as it was expected to to grow in air. And actually, there was major growth in the 55 plus age range. It was the the younger people that were moving further away. And I assume presumably people looking to retire out towards um, west coast of Scotland over there. So for us, that made a big tick in the demographics box for that specific deal. So 
Um, it, it's looking at, it, it's obviously looking at things like infrastructure investment. And I like to look at how, how much effort places are putting into recruiting new businesses and what sort of help are they giving them and what are their business improvement districts and things. Like that. So it's not just infrastructure. There's a fair few towns in the East Midlands which you could directly compare by how hard or not they try to get new business there, which obviously at the moment to us is significantly relevant. I think, I think for me it boils down to what is likely going to happen to the average household's income in, in a specific area. And if that means that you've got to take away the top percentile and the bottom percentile because they're not going to affect us, people that aren't going to be buying houses, renting and will be renting off, off the council and things like that. But from a private rental point of view, I want to rent a heavily and so what percentage of a household's earning will go on rent in what it's been used to up to a certain value, up to a certain capital value in an area. And then it's understanding, well, and then what's people's affordability in terms of what, what they can pay to buy it. And so for me, it's based on household incomes, which can be affected by all sorts of things, a lot of which you've already kind of touched on. And the other point is what kind of age, what age do people typically look to buy in those areas? And what's the different levels of income for specific ages? What is a 30-year-old's kind of income or household income? And people don't get married until they're 33 these days or something like that. And so they don't have two incomes to go into the household and things like that. So that can start to shift things a bit. And that's really getting into granular detail. But for me, it's, it's, it's massive about what income's coming in. And that's going to be generated by, like you said, businesses being attracted to the air. And what will attract those? What infrastructure and transport, schools, where's the workforce coming from? Is there just one employer in an area? Is it, I don't know, parts of, I mentioned Aberdeen before, is it just the oil industry? What happens if that industry goes pop or that employer goes pop? Are you putting all your eggs in one basket there? So that's kind of what, what, I, what I would look for in terms of finance, household finance, really, I suppose. Yeah, I think really good stuff. It's about interest rates and how, how that affects it. But I think if you can look at earnings, like one of the best metrics I look at, and I, I swear by this one, is, um, is the percentage of people's earnings that goes on their mortgage servicing. Because that takes into consideration inflation, it takes into consideration interest rates. It's just such a good one, and it, it's served me really well in the past. So you can look at that for first-time buyers and second-home movers, and then in conjunction with that, you're looking at on their upfront costs, so deposits and stamp duty, as a proportion of their salary, and that's household salary again. Remember, we're not in the 1950s where there's only one earner. So it's, it's, it's looking at it, at it that way. And that, that really, really does kind of have massive, massive impact. So like when you look at stamp duty, well, that's a, big diff- that's a big change on the upfront costs. And we've seen how that can affect certain areas, haven't we, recently? Absolutely. So we've kind of talked demographic and location. What about then tenant type? So I know in residential, we've got, mostly it's students um, that's obviously going to be affected by what's happening with the unis and, and that's been very far recently with it with the pandemic and um, we've got social housing so it might be sort of your typical council tenants and is the council able to fund that what's happening with the lha rate and then private rents and like we talked about that that's affected by affordability. Is there anything else on tenancy that you would Well, I think I do, I do like the social model and the way it kind of hybridises residential and commercial terms. I think you get a really, you've got a stronger case, a, a, a strong cash flowing residential property then with a, a degree of certainty to it. And if you, if you look at what's happened there, there's a couple of people that sell these as kind of turnkey style investments. And the yield they've been selling them at and or the location they've been selling them in over the years has got lower and worse, ultimately. Some of that because I think the market isn't necessarily, not everyone who invests in it is is 100% switched on to all the risks and the, the, the benefits and the, the downsides of buying something at 120 grand when the, the bricks and mortar is only worth 90. And that's a, a long conversation that, that we could happily get into. So, they, they sometimes make uh, maybe a few mistakes on the, the upfront. It's a bit like buying a bond at 120 when the par value is 100, ultimately, isn't it? And it's the, 
is the same thing that people don't necessarily realise. But I mean, social in itself is a, a, a massively growing and, and I think massively attractive asset class, but it's taking time for funders to catch up. It's taking time for everyone to catch up. And, and my own experience of registered providers is, unfortunately, they're not that good at procurement when it comes to dealing with landlords. Or maybe I should say organisations like mine, which have quite a lot they could do for them and with them, need their quite tunnel vision on how they acquire stock and they're not necessarily particularly used to leasing lots of stuff and there's still loads and loads and loads of, of runway in that sector to really put it on the map I think and it's quite an exciting one to be involved in but of course then as soon as it does get really really significant as that becomes a really significant part of the housing benefit bill that will also attract more attention at the central government level so what happens then well we know what normally happens then at that stage there'll, there'll be cuts there's a risk there, isn't there? That is that is the biggest risk I can see to buying something that is focused on social housing right now and is difficult to adapt back into the private rental. And and that is that my forecast is showing that rents over the next 10 years on average will, will increase for private rental sector and will do pretty well on those increases. Now, what I would be concerned about is levels of austerity on the social and those not going up when we've got inflation happening and actually the private rent starts to go up at a certain rate of knots, but your social is stuck where it is for the next 10 years. And this goes back to the argument, total returns. What is What does that look like over that longer term? You're missing out on all those increases of rents and, uh, and, and that kind of thing. So I think it's, again, like everything, you've got to look at all the different moving parts. But it's also, if you've got the asset and you're able to adapt it back to different tenant types. So is there anything else then that you look for when you're forecasting for an investment? And are you always looking at a specific length of time? Well, I think I'm I'm certainly always looking at a specific length of time. The only, uh, I I suppose I have diverted a little bit away from that over the last 18 months because there have been times when we, we have overheads, we've got to cover them. There's times when I've done deals that I wouldn't have done in the past seven or eight years. So I thought, well, look, let's do it. There's something in it. And it's more, I'll give you an example of one. There's a tenant in a property. The property, it's trading at about 50 pence in the pound on its bricks value, but it's in a very low value area and it needs a full refurb. So it's not 50 pence in the pound at all. It's probably about found its market value. It's got a bit of a discount built into it. If you put it in an auction, it's one of those that would sell above what it's worth, probably. But that's not the way that I like to, to price things. But the tenant's been in for 11 years. They've never had a rent increase, but they accept that rent increases will come in the future. And ultimately, they want to stay for the rest of their life. So not something I would normally do. It comes down, you know, we're not in it to make a quick turn out of a longish term investment. We want to buy decent quality stuff that has a strategic reason for us to want to hold it ultimately you know what we try to do is buy trade prices wholesale prices ideally but trade prices at worst and then try and get them to revalue at retail prices so good example right at the start of the opening up we had a property on the market we put it on the market late feb 2020 great timing i hear everybody say um, it was really nicely done up but we were really pushing the price in the area. We were 10% of what a three-bed semi would sell at. Now, we've done a really good job, if I do say so myself, and I felt we could justify that 10%. But ultimately, the market was already rocking back just to touch. People were worried about what was going to go on. And then the lockdown came, and we were sitting with that one thinking, you know what, we've got this on a bridging loan. When, when, when we come out of the first lockdown, let's put the price down. I think we put the price down about 4%, ready for the first weekend of viewings. Loads of viewings, two offers at asking price straight away and thought, oh, bugger, probably shouldn't have put the price down quite so quickly. But we were still happy to take what we did. So the, the, the thing there is I, I spent too much time forecasting what I thought should happen rather than what how humans were going to interact and how marketplaces work when there's a time of significant stress. 
and it, it, it goes from some people say you know you never beat the market because it's all about it's all it's all priced into everything that you do and then some people say that's a load of nonsense it's never priced in I think the reality is it varies over time depending on what's going on yeah it's something like seven out of eight times the market is correct or yeah 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 no, that's, that's, that's really, really interesting. I, I'm fortunate enough to be going away with you in October, not to any sunny climate, but over to Lancaster, where we are involved in the retreat along with Sue Sims that we did last year, and we, we kind of facilitate that. Do you want to mention anything about that before we go? If yeah, absolutely. It's my favourite week of the year. So we, we had a super time last year, a really diverse group of people who had all sorts of different property businesses and takes on property and what they had done and then what they wanted to achieve and ultimately saw them go away with a good solid 12 months and then... If they're going to have Rob on their back for the next six months, they've got Sue. So both of those obviously inspire action in the, the heart of the receiver. And when we did our six-month catch-up day, which was only a couple of months ago, wasn't it? It was brilliant to see some of the results that people have had. And it, it always is. And it's, it's not just about, about that side of it. I think it's the relationship building, looking at the relationship that last year's cohort have built and doing some, some business together and, and things like that. And since the retreat where I've done a bit with a couple of the candidates as well, which has been absolutely ideal. And that's really, I think it's that chance to everyone to get to know each other a lot better. It's always surprising how much you can get to know someone in a week because we are pretty much on top of each other. Like, you know, it's intense stuff. You know, we're eating together. We, 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 we're doing, we're talking about property the whole time and we're, uh, we do occasionally get, I suppose, half an hour for an odd beer or something, maybe, but that's about it, really, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's breakfast, lunch, and dinner together, and there's only 12, um, 12 delegates that come. So it is, you are all together, and you do form very good relationships. So I think we've got about half, half the spaces left. So if anyone is interested, a link on here where you can contact myself. And, of course, we also run the Boardroom Club together. Again, it's uh, property businesses... Uh, where we act as board advisors to them and on a monthly basis. And that's uh, quite an intense uh, one for people who are full-time in, into their property business and, uh, and, and are interested in, in that. Again, please feel free to give us a shout. Adam, as always, it's been an absolute pleasure. Is there anything else that you think is relevant to forecasting that we haven't really touched on today. I'm sure there probably is, but anything that's not in your... So whenever, whenever I come on, I know we could go on for about three hours quite easily, so uh, so, so maybe, but I think we'll I'll reserve reserve judgment until I've listened back to it and we'll look forward to the next time already, Rob. Thanks again for having me. Brilliant. Thanks a lot.